zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Hell Knight, released August 28, 1981. It was written by Randy Feldman, directed by Tom DeSimone, and released by Compass International Pictures. Compass had previously released Carpenter's Halloween, and this release would be the final company release. Director DeSimone was tired of watching modern teens chased through haunted houses in jeans and t-shirts and decided on the Halloween-esque Hell Knight as an excuse to dress the cast in a more gothic wardrobe to better match the setting, that being Kimberly Crest Mansion in Redlands, California. Fleetwood Mac would later employ the same shooting location for their 1987 music video for Big Love off their album Tango in the Night. The interiors used in the film were actually a Pasadena residence and the frat house was the lobby of a Los Angeles apartment building. Production lasted 40 days and cost around $1.4 million. It made 2.3 back for an adorable profit of just $900,000. <laughs> it's actually more expensive than I thought it ought to be. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that profit may have been wiped out by a contract dispute from screenwriter Randy Feldman, who claimed a 2.5% stake in the net profit, which amounted to just $22,000 for his share. Feldman suggested the profits were underreported and he was owed $50,000 and an additional half million in punitive damages. The results of the suit are unknown, which usually means he took some kind of a settlement. Linda Blair, the lead actress here, was nominated for a Razzie for her part and lost to a tie between Bo Derek in Tarzan the Ape Man and Faye Dunaway in Mommy Dearest. After the success of the Prom Night reboot in 2008, Sony set their sights on a Hell Knight reboot, but I can't find any mention of the project beyond 2008, and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think this one was uh, ripe for the picking here. Yeah. <laughs> on the version we watched, literally the first frame is a close-up of Linda Blair screaming full volume. No corporate logos or anything. First frame is picture. Is that her screaming? I'm pretty sure, yeah. Oh, man. It... it... It was very obnoxious to start the film yeah. this way. Well, especially because I had to rewind it and be like, what, did I start this in the middle of the movie? Yeah. Because it just, like, it's people running around. Like, there's no fade in or anything. It's just a, a crowd of people. And I'm like, yep. I think I missed something. Yes, we cut from the scream to a college bonfire where a wet t-shirt contest is underway, implying the screaming we saw was just a part of this revelry, but it was clearly an extreme close-up of Linda Blair's face, and she hasn't entered the story yet. So maybe this is a shot from later in the movie that they just right. plugged into the start. Traditionally, if you're having a wet t-shirt contest, don't you wear tight? White. Yeah. Well, and or and or tighter t-shirts. These are all like pajama size. Yeah, it's like yeah. so they're getting wet, but it doesn't matter because if it's everything's draping off of them. Yeah. Screwing it up, guys. 
A banner reading Hell Knight has been strung up in the background between the columns of a campus building. Hey, that's the name of the movie. Oh my God, really? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wow. It already reminds me of uh, the beginning of Terror Train. I was thinking that. I was actually, Mm -hmm. I was looking at it because I'm like, oh, these, uh, the names and the credits, like, uh, Yoblans. I'm like, that sounds familiar. Well, Yoblans is is the Paramount producer that did it. It is. And I was like, I knew that name. And I was like, I bet it was Terror Train. And then I looked it up and I'm like, oh, it wasn't Terror Train. Right. Yeah. (laughs) It was Halloween. And and I really hate like the cheesy like ripple effect on the credits as they yeah. roll in. Yeah. Makes it look like a dream sequence. Yeah. Kind of. As we get closer, we can see the building is the fraternity house of Alpha Sigma Rho. Inside the house, a costume party is underway. Fraternity president Peter Bennett, dressed as Prince Charming, I think, starts hitting on a girl. A pirate with a fake parrot on his shoulder interrupts the flirtation with an announcement. Peter, everything's all set up. Wonderful, Scott. Do you guys recall the last horror film that we saw with a non-Halloween costume party pirate with a fake parrot on his shoulder? Terror Train? It was Terror Train. (laughs) Out of nowhere, Scott tells the girl that she's not showing Peter enough respect. I'm showing more than respect, honey. (laughs) She flashes her boobs away from camera at Peter, and Scott shies away embarrassed. Do we get, I don't even think we get any naked girls in this movie at all. Correct. Peter is about to lead the nameless sorority sister upstairs when he notices a new pledge by the door. This is Marty, played by Linda Blair, and he seems hypnotized for some reason. Don't be mean. No, I'm not trying no, to be she, mean, but she doesn't look traditionally attractive no, a, she's, as this character. No, she's cute. She's not like the hot chick that everyone's going to be. like, And she's not even like the stereotypical, I'm going to put glasses on and my hair up, right. but when I take all that off, I'm super hot you know girl she, yeah she's just cute but she's she's wearing like this big like puffy gown and her face still looks like the seven-year-old that she was in the exorcist to me like i don't know i think it's just a child actor thing that your face kind of stays the same as it did when or or maybe you end up casting the children who have those cherubic faces yeah i mean i kind of felt the same way with um i'm gonna forget her name here but the the actress that um, plays Angel that was in uh, Jaws 2. Yes. Yeah, Jaws yeah. 2. Because I'm just like, she also has, I think, a very similar face where she looks young and cute, not not unattractive, but yeah. not traditionally hot girl. Yeah. But, they were, but she was the center of that, you know, lust in that movie. Right, yeah. My question is, why does he not know who she is? She's just now pledging to the sorority, so she's like new here. Right, but to me it was just like it was like okay, like this is like pledge night, so there's going to be like dozens and dozens of pledges. Right, but yeah, but there, but there's only four total, so you would think he would, as, as far as like, because he's so intricate in his planning, like he plans this for weeks and weeks. <laughs> he's like he doesn't even know who she is. Yeah. So in preparation, you're saying he doesn't even bother to find out who the four people are. He's going to torture. Correct. <laughs> when Marty notices him staring, she asks her friend, the sorority president, May who he is, and she explains that Peter is the fraternity president and he takes Hell Knight very seriously. Why does Marty have to put up with all this pledge stuff if her friend is literally the sorority president? Shouldn't she just be like, you're in? Are you not really that? Are you not really friends? I was going to say, I don't actually think they're friends. especially based just acquaintances. Well, especially based on the dialogue she has later about how she's getting into the sorority. I think they're using her. That's true. I can't tell what Marty is supposed to be dressed as. It looks Marie Antoinette-ish without a wig, but sometimes it's a little Red Riding Hood-ish. Well, I think she's just supposed to be like Victorian era. Yeah, it's just there's just a gothic style to the dress, but sometimes it has a hood and it has one of those like necklaces with a little like a profile uh, face not on a it. Not brooch, but yeah. 
I, I thought that, that was this was gonna play into it in some kind of way, like a crimsony peak kind oh, of okay, like thing. Okay, sure. Yeah. She was gonna talk to a ghost who was yeah exactly era appropriate clothing. Right. We see a cigarette girl move through the party, and a guy dressed as Robin Hood takes some beer from her tray. Robin Hood's cowboy friend notices Marty crossing the floor, but Robin Hood says he's got his eye on the flapper dancing in the middle of the room. Robin Hood waves to the flapper, and she smiles back at him. Scott asks if they should have started initiation by now, and Peter says that he usually waits for Sikowski to throw up, or for the front windows to be shattered, and right on cue, both things happen. Well, I guess it's time to get the show on the road. (laughs) A parade of cars move down a dark road lit only with torches in the hands of their passengers. They all happen to be convertibles or open-topped cars for some i'm like why, yeah. how does everybody have one of it's these it's a rich neighborhood <laughs> i guess well I, th- I think that that that's part of this too is that um the the kids will talk about like their families and their parents and it, it seems like some of them are very wealthy come from very wealthy families yeah. but it was also terribly convenient because they all had torches in their hands and you don't mm-hmm. want that inside the car yeah but they could also <laughs> like they could do a thing where the kids are sitting on top of the car or sitting on the hood or whatever and i think some of these I cars do are. have people yeah, sitting yeah. on the hood They pull up to the gates of a seemingly abandoned mansion. The costumed cast all crowd in around Peter at the gate. He raises a pistol and shoots the lock off the chain holding the gates closed. Probably not the smartest thing to shoot a gun at all this heavy-duty metal stuff, though. (laughs) I half expected him to blow a finger off with a ricochet. Right. Uh, I put put a note here, like, like, well, that's one, because he puts it right up to the lock. There's no no air gap between it. I was like, well, you're just going to blow up the barrel. But then we'll come to find out later about the gun. There's more than meets the eye going on. Yeah. Oh, that makes more sense because I was like, so he isn't actually shooting the lock off. Correct. It wasn't locked, I don't think. (laughs) Well, because what really bothered me was I was going to ask, in theory... They haven't been inside yet this evening because well, the this gate evening, is locked. Yeah, correct. Okay, but there's an awful lot of candles lit when they yeah. walk in. But they, yeah, that, there's there's <laughs> all sorts of problems. But obviously, they should have been here for a full night annually for the last however many years they've been doing the hell night thing. I don't know. I don't know how long the hell night. Well, the math tradition. doesn't. Yeah, because the math doesn't add up. Like. He's like, well, he hasn't been at this college for 12 years. Right. Yeah, exactly. And if he's fraternity president, he's probably been at there at most four years. Right. Because I'm assuming like it's a four year institution. Yeah, but he could have inherited the tradition from someone else. That's true. Uh, And he just takes it very seriously now. Because when he has everything's like scheduled out so much, like with the window breaking and the guy throwing up, I was like, is he like a, is he like a Van Wilder that he like is a career (laughs) super, super senior He pushes through the gates to lead his guests on a tour of Garth Manor. Obviously, this is too early to have been a Wayne's World reference, but maybe the reference works the other way? What is the reference? Well, what's the most famous manor you can think of? Wayne Manor? Oh, And this is Garth Manor. Wayne and Garth. Oh, I, I, I automatically assumed that it was something in the movie that I haven't seen in 20 years that I didn't remember. No, no, I'm just (laughs) noticing that as of right now, my two favorite movie manors are wayne and garth see (laughs) i could have gotten really like literal like like i don't mean like i mean like literary and said manor farm but well it's a long way to literary yeah (laughs) (laughs) thank you (laughs) you're such an idiot (laughs) now i'm glad i didn't make my manor farm joke (laughs) it's all staying in 
Apparently, all pledges have to stay the night here, and we get a sort of exposition fest from the flapper girl, Miss Dunsmore. Do you guys recall the last Dunsmore we mentioned in the Haunted House movie? Or Dunsmuir, to be more accurate. Oh. Was it the Sacrifice? Or what was it, that one? It was that one. Ah, uh, what was that title, though? Fire, sa- burning sacrifice. What was it? Oh, burnt offerings. Burnt, burnt offerings. offerings. Oh, That's thank it. You. <laughs> he didn't describe the movie at all, so I was struggling a little bit. I'm like, what are we talking about? Yes, uh, <laughs> the mansion that served as the shooting location the, that was an actual haunted mansion was called the Dunsmuir House hmm. or Dunsmuir Manor or something like that. And why is this night so special, Miss Dunsmore? Because 12 years ago, Raymond Garth murdered his family here and then committed suicide. And is there something funny about a man murdering his family and then killing himself? I'm just a little tipsy. (laughs) Peter threatens to search her for intoxicants and she welcomes it. Peter offers more exposition that reminded me specifically of Fear No Evil because he's giving a tour and talking about a rich guy building a mansion with his excess fortune, which we had a bit of in that movie. After four generations, the last Garth family to live here were Raymond and Lillian with their four children. The oldest child, Morris, was mentally handicapped. The second child, Suzanne, was ugly with a bum leg. Peter tells the crowd that the house is not outfitted with any modern luxuries like gas, electricity, or phone. Not sure why this information came in the middle of the family history lesson. Uh, Although it does have running water? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And electricity, it seems like, later, but we'll get back to that. Maybe not. I don't know. The third kid was Margaret, who was deaf, blind, and dumb. And the fourth and last child, Andrew, gestated for ten and a half months. Peter describes him as a little gork. Like his sister Margaret, Andrew didn't speak except in grunts until he was 14, at which point his father Raymond had had enough and strangled his wife Lillian before killing the children one at a time. So at this point I am Googling the term gork because that is not something <laughs> that I had ever heard before. No, but I think it's <laughs> it's a term used by nursing staff to refer to someone in a vegetative state. Yeah, it seems to be that that is sort of the, the slang. and and But like it also doesn't seem like it was widespread slang as no. far as I could yes. tell. So it seems a little weird. And and there's a reason why I'd never heard it before. Like, it seems like they just used it here. They just wanted (laughs) something to sound like a slur, and Mm -hmm. this is what they came up with. Maybe it is one. Morris got his brains bashed in with a fireplace poker to the head. Suzanne was impaled on the same weapon. He slit Margaret's throat and then hung himself without bothering to kill Andrew, or so the story goes. Leaving the cruelest punishment of all to his 14-year-old gorked-out son Andrew, who was forced to witness the slaughter of his entire family. Evidently, Raymond left a note behind to tell the police the entire story for some reason. I don't know why he cared so much about the police understanding what happened here. But strangely, they only discovered three dead bodies. And young Andrew was nowhere to be found. Which three? There were six people in the family. Five are dead. You found three bodies. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Presumably the three they found were Andrew's siblings, but Peter doesn't specify which corpses were missing in his story. It seemed very intentional to leave that detail out, but it turns out that does not matter at all. In fact, it's not even well, accurate. Uh, well, maybe, maybe not. Well, we'll come back to it. Yeah, okay. I, I do have questions. Yes, <laughs> many questions. We all do. Peter claims Andrew is rumored to still be living here on the property. Next, he leads them all inside, and it looks like it hasn't been touched since the 1700s, except that there's probably 50 lit candles in the entry hall. Yeah. And every other room yeah, in this that's entire true. Place. I didn't know if they were just bringing them with them. <laughs> like a bachelor with the last functional light bulb, just bringing it to the next room because 
<laughs> don't have any more. But you're carrying 50 candles at right. once. <laughs> yes, for some reason. That's necessary. All the pledges are invited to stay in whatever rooms they like, but they have to stay the whole night. Peter locks the gate behind himself on the way out. As their only escape, he hands them a gun through the gate. Now, the only way out of Garth Manor is to shoot your way out. To shoot the lock off again, I guess? Or is he implying suicide is the only way out? <laughs> only one of you can leave. <laughs> Unless you line your heads up. It's haunted Mansion style, there's only one way out. <laughs> <laughs> is this room actually stretching? Nope. He also cautions them against climbing over the fence because there are sharp blades at the top. And don't try climbing the fence. You might cut your nuts off. <laughs> Turns out there's only four pledges, two to the fraternity and two to the sorority. Do you guys recall the last time a group could only muster four pledges? Terror train? <laughs> no. It was a car club. Hollywood Knights? Hollywood Knights. And they made them carry tires to mm. a car, remember? The rest of the crowd scream and laugh as they return to their cars and drive away and abandon the pledges for the night. The couples pair off quickly. Marty and the cowboy, Jeff, walk together while Robin Hood flirts with the flapper girl, whose first name we still haven't heard. Robin Hood says the whole story is bullshit, but Jeff is from around here and believes that at least the murder is true, but not the part about Andrew still living here. Robin Hood complains about how cold it is out here, which gets a response from the flapper girl. I'll keep you warm, Wes. The name is Seth. And you've got a date, you little beach bunny. <laughs> Once they're back inside, Flapper Girl pitches a party. Apparently she had some quaaludes hidden in her headband and a flask of whiskey tucked conspicuously under her garter belt. It's not even hidden by a skirt. It's literally just out in the open, impossible to miss. She also smuggled in a miniaturized stereo in her cleavage. I don't understand why they would want to prevent them from having those things anyways. We'll come back to that. Okay. The flapper admits here that Peter even bothered to search her again before they were left here, and he didn't find this flask that was just right here on her thigh, out in the open. But you know what he did find? But he did relieve her of half an ounce of Colombian pot and half a gram of Coke. You remember the last time we mentioned Colombian pot? That's my question right here. <laughs> Does Jess know? What? No, I have to... Colombian pot? No, I don't know. Junior was pretending to sell it to Mary and Phyllis in our most recent Patreon review, Last House on the Left, when he dragged them into the apartment. Colombian pot. He said, I got some Colombian stuff. Yeah. I got an ounce for 20 bucks. Which was a good deal. Right. Immediately after suggesting a party, Seth and the flapper head upstairs for some sexy times. Left alone, Cowboy Jeff invites Marty to share some liquor with him. Last call from the bar. When they strike up a conversation, Jeff admits he's from Hillsdown, and Marty understands immediately that he comes from money. He asks what's wrong with rich people, and she tells him the correct answer. The rich capitalist feeds on the life of the downtrodden poor. Figures are radical. Of course he finds this a radical opinion, because that's what his daddy told him it was. Marty admits that she actually doesn't care about politics, and she's rethinking this whole sorority business too. Upstairs, we see a suction cup arrow hit a painting of a bald old man, who looks kind of like a young Martin Van Buren. I don't know why a young Martin Van Buren is still an old man. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the president that Little Pete had not yet stuck up his nose, Right, I think. yeah. Well, I mean, he does by the end of the episode, right? Correct. And it gets stuck. Yeah. He's also, I think, on a chart of the only president that's not related to any other presidents. Like, oh. all the other presidents are related by cousins and things like that, except for Martin Van Buren. Seth, down to just his boxers, laughs as he knocks a second suction cup arrow 
with a third between his teeth. He fires the second off screen to the left, and then fires the last one at the flapper's butt. Hey! As she I bends over. do not like this. No. Because it's, it's the suction cup is on an actual wooden arrow. That yeah. thing could come off and yep. then just actually be an arrow. Yep. It could hurt her very badly. Like, both as an actress and in the movie. of like. Neither. Well, I'm sure as an actress, they just threw it at her. I don't think they fired it at her with a bow. I don't know. People are stupid. They, that's true. People are very stupid. She, too, is stripped down to her underwear, and they jump into bed together. She tries to distract him from sex by asking about his hobbies, and he tells her about surfing in the most sexual terms he can while straddling her as though she were a surfboard. And I brought in my most radical stick, an 18-inch pinner gun. 18 inches? My goodness. All of a sudden, a perfect six-footer starts rolling towards me. I turn around, two, three strokes, and I'm dropping in. Two or three strokes? That didn't take long. It actually reminded me of a scene in Hog Wild, which got a Minnesota review this season, wherein a member of a teenage biker gang explains to his teacher the appeal of motorcycles. Is this the way to feel? Uh, wind's blowing, your face is glowing, but this is just cruising. I mean, do you want to go for more? Do you want to gamble, Mrs. Randall? <laughs> yes! When we start goosing the juice. At the end of his surfing story, Seth jumps in the air and lands on the girl, and they both laugh in bed. Back out on the road, Peter and some friends, Scott and a girl, return to the mansion to start pranking the pledges. They creep up and unlock the gate with Peter's key. Scott and the girl are sent to the north side to set things up while Peter handles the rest. Jeff says he's pledging Alpha Sigma Rho because his dad was a member. Marty is weirdly impressed that he's doing what his parents wanted because it's refreshing. Is it? I feel like that's what people in fraternities do is what yeah. their parents wanted them to. Jeff pours her a bit more alcohol and asks Marty why she's pledging and she blames boredom and peer pressure. She claims to have made a deal with the sorority president, May, that if she does everybody's homework, she gets the best room, clothes, and a car. Apparently the car had some brake problems, but nothing Marty couldn't handle herself. Wait a second. You replaced the brakes yourself? Yeah. Where did you learn to do that? My father owns a garage, and I worked in it all through high school. You know, my car's been making these pain noises. I think it's the valves. Now you know I don't tell anybody I'm a mechanic. As they creep along the stone wall outside the property, the girl following Scott falls into a hole. She's able to climb right out, but Scott tells her that there are vents all along this wall that lead to an underground tunnel system. Elsewhere on the property, Peter swings a flashlight around until he finds a panel with a bunch of switches wired to the house. So this is my first problem going forward. Yeah. Is that he has like accurate maps and what and diagrams of the interior tunnels of this house because he had to go underneath to right. wire all this and stuff. he didn't find any of the stuff down there. Yeah, like he found nothing and nothing happened to him. Right. And he brought a generator? Yeah, there's, there needs to be a <laughs> yeah. generator unless there's a battery in this switchboard that's yeah. powering everything. While they continue talking, Jeff and Marty hear a scream upstairs and move to investigate. Seth wanders out assuming they were the screamers. Wait a second. If you weren't screaming, and we weren't screaming... Somebody's trying to mindfuck us. What happened, Wes? My name is Seth, darling. The screams continue, so Jeff and Seth climb the stairs to the third floor in search of the source. They find a small speaker box attached to the window frame of the house with no electricity. So this is being powered remotely somehow, or I don't know what's going on. 
Well, and he's like so desperate to like unscrew things. I was like, like just break it, just rip it, off. Just rip yeah. it. Yeah, like that wire is gonna be nothing. There must be a line going all the way out to the yard and a generator grinding away out there somewhere. Same note. In the shadow of a tree, we can see a smile cross Peter's face as he flips random switches on his soundboard. Jeff is able to deactivate the device handily, and outside Peter is furious that his soundboard has already been thwarted. Peter rejoins Scott and the girl and spooks her in the process. Peter tells the girl, who we will learn here is named May, so this is the same girl that was the president of the sorority yeah. at the party. I just didn't recognize her yet. Uh, he tells her to go around the side of the mansion and start the diversion. She doesn't want to be a distraction, but Peter insists. This movie does have a problem, though, of having cast people that are a little too similar looking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think the our surfer dude looks different, but the other two guys... Well, yes. I mean, there's three, other three guys. There's other three guys. Scott, Peter, and Jeff look the same. They're fairly interchangeable, though yeah. um, one of them, I think, looks a little nerdier than the other two. But the other sure. two, I don't know which one's yeah. which. And then the other two girls, aside from Marty, are just blonde girls. Well, one of them's British, though, is the only defining feature. I think she's her. Australian. But when they're not talking and they may be just heads and stuff, like it's hard <laughs> to tell. Yes. And it might be easier to <laughs> differentiate them if they had names yes. that I knew. <laughs> I was also confused. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. What a little twat. We should have left her behind. Why? Her behind is the best part. We should have kept her behind and left the rest of her. As much as I know that this joke would have worked better <laughs> if we skipped the last sentence, I would still keep the whole line read in the edit just for the grinny squinty face he makes. Yeah. <laughs> because he just smiles like Johnny Depp's Willy Wonka and it's off-putting but funny at the same time. It's like he's trying to channel Groucho Marx. Yeah. And it doesn't work, but... <laughs> yeah, that's true. It does have that kind of a ring to it. And I'll let the rest of her. Creeping around the house, May spots Jeff and Marty flirting by the fireplace. As she continues along the wall toward the planned distraction, May is stepping over obstacles on the ground and probably avoiding more pitfalls into the underground labyrinth. She is suddenly spooked by an owl, and as she tries to step around another ventilation hole, a pair of dirty arms reach up out of it and start clawing at her legs to drag her down under the ground. There's a shot of these filthy hands scratching deeply into a woman's leg, and I don't know how you fake this unless they literally just scratched a leg for the insert. Maybe the hand is smearing lines that capably emulate a bleeding scratch, but it looks like a person just got scratched in the leg. Maybe it's reversed? Like they're, they're actually smearing They're healing up. her. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> they, they hired Wolverine and Rogue. No, no, no. The, the healing lady's hands. Oh, the Ellen Burstyn's yeah, down here? The miracle. From Resurrection? Resurrection, yeah. <laughs> May claws at the stone wall for a grip, but the dirty hands are strong, and they eat old people's medicine for fuel. No, I'm <laughs> They drag her underground, and she lands in front of two equally filthy legs before standing up terrified. The thing that dragged her down here throws her against the wall and chops her head off with a long-handled butcher knife. Her final scream is the same clip that we've been hearing in the house speakers, but maybe Peter used her for this recording, and she can replicate it exactly. Do you guys recall the last time that a person was dragged underground by a monster and unceremoniously murdered? Uh, what was that one with the, the the freak show guy at the fair? No, not that one. I was going to say Blood Beach. Blood Beach was the answer oh, I was looking for. Okay. But, but I'm she, not sure. Doesn't You're she, talking about the Dracula versus Frankenstein? No, 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 no. The one in the... Um, at the, like, the carnival. The fun house? Yeah, and and they the 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 bad guy like drags one of the girls under into that shaft, uh, like the the ventilation the shaft? ventilation shaft. Maybe, I'd have to rewatch it. Mm. That's a that's a possibility. You get a half point. 
Thank I've, you. I've been keeping track of this all time. <laughs> you guys had no idea. I'm sure I'm not winning. <laughs> no. Back inside, somehow the screaming starts up again. They must have had multiple speakers and multiple sound boxes. Jeff grabs a candelabra to investigate, and Seth also races downstairs to help him find the new speaker. They disappear into the kitchen together, and a sudden gust of wind blows through the windows and puts out some of the candles, rendering the house darker than it was. Well, then Marty's all, Jeff, is that you? It's like, is that, is that I him? I just left. What do you think, I blew through the house? <laughs> yeah, I was like, what, is, who, is who Jeff? The wind? Are you he? Marty is frightened and walks away from the fireplace until a pair of doors slam shut and lock in front of her. When she looks back into the room with the fireplace, we're treated to the first of several unanswerable questions mm-hmm. of the film. She sees the ghost of Raymond Garth, with a noose around his neck, wandering through the room. He's half transparent, and if this is meant to be a real ghost, spoiler alert, it's the only supernatural element in the film, but we never actually bother to explain this moment moving forward. Okay, I thought I missed something here. No, you missed nothing. Okay, I was a little confused, because we do see a dummy later... That yeah. right. it's not this. looks like this. I double checked because I thought that on my first pass too. Okay. But it's they're they're not the same thing at all. This is just a real ghost. Or <laughs> another prank that we never see behind the scenes for. Yeah, I, I thought it was like, okay, so he's semi transparent, so it's supposed to be like a hologram. Right. Well, on set it's maybe just a comp job with like a double exposure. Yeah. But it could be a Pepper's ghost illusion, like we'll see later. But no explanation is given for what this could have been and the reality of the film. Yeah. And it, it did actually creep me out when it's closest to her and the mouth kind of opens up. Yeah. And I was like, oh. She's Ri- kind of moaning. Yeah, but just like the weird the way the teeth look. Yeah. I was like, oh, Richard doesn't like this. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is this is actually now getting like to like, like I spent like tolerable horror, like, like this is really cheesy. I was like, nah, I don't like this. <laughs> Marty struggles with the door some more until Jeff and Seth return to open them for her and she tells them about the ghost she probably imagined. Maybe the flapper girl spiked her drink with lewds and we just didn't see it. Outside, Peter and Scott open a trap door in the stone wall and Peter disappears into it. Marty stares out a window as Jeff follows the speaker wire all the way out of the house into a tree where he finds another panel of switches. He flips a few back and forth and Marty does some tests to see what they're controlling. It seems like they can remote lock these windows. Did you guys ever see Haunted Honeymoon? No. No, I haven't Gene Wilder. I know the movie that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh... It's great. It's, it's a really Gilda's fun. Gilda's in it too, right? Yeah, Gilda Radner. She's great. Um, but uh, this movie reminded me, at this point, I was thinking a lot about that about Haunted Honeymoon because it's it's all about fake scares that are all these electronic devices is, is hidden like, around Is it the house. like High Spirits? Um, kind of, yeah. <laughs> uh, but this one, they're, they're trying to sell tourists on it, right? So that's like High Spirits too, right? You, no, no. Well, in Haunted Honeymoon, it, it's it's about like a, th- a form of therapy. Oh, okay. Uh, but, uh, but I was thinking a lot about it. I just was curious if you guys had seen it. No, I haven't seen that one yet. Jeff turns and screams into the woods to the responsible pranksters. Peter! Scott! And all the rest of you! We know you're here! been a lot of laughs, but why don't we just shut the fun house off now, right? We cut to the mansion's rooftop where we find Scott attaching a wire to a dummy in a rubber monster mask. He thinks he hears someone nearby and he keeps turning around and calling out for Peter to no response. So how do you know that this isn't what was supposedly doing the ghost thing? Because this thing is wearing like a burlap sack coat, like a poncho, 
and the other thing was wearing a suit with a noose tied around its neck. The other thing was a person wearing makeup, and this is a rubber mask wrapped around yeah, a Yeah, I just thought it was like poor movie making. It could be poor movie making, <laughs> but that's that's our point basically is that we never explain we never see him taking off this mask in a room where he was reflecting himself in right. a glass and, pane. And if this was supposed to look that real, it just doesn't it doesn't match well enough for us yeah. to understand that this was that ghost thing. Right. So, I think the the only possible explanation is that that was actually the ghost of Raymond Garth. Yeah. <laughs> and we just don't come back to it. We don't come back to it. It It's never explained. There's never anything like it again. Yeah. A POV watching Scott up here on the roof creeps slowly around a corner and Scott picks up a flashlight to investigate. He finds nothing and assumes Peter is pranking him. But when he turns around to go back to the dummy, a filthy hand grabs his face and drags him down out of frame. We get a quick look at the silhouetted creature with thin gray hair spouting out in all directions. He grips Scott by the sides of his head and twists it 180 degrees around before dropping him backward to land face first on his back. This looked really good. It did, yeah. So what I, and I don't know if they say anything about how they did this. I anticipate that he basically put his clothes on backwards. I think so. And turned his head as far as it would go to start the scene and then whips it like yeah. f- straight forward so it looks like it's gone completely backwards. But it definitely works and there's like blood dripping it's out great. of his mouth. It's it's a cool effect. I think this is the best thing in the whole movie. <laughs> Possibly. <yeah. laughs> Back inside, Marty asks Jeff why she's still hearing the occasional scream if he unplugged the speakers and Jeff assumes there's a bunch of them but they might have just been hearing Scott die I think is the joke. Or maybe there are more ghosts in the house. (laughs) It's possible. Who knows? Now that we've established ghosts are real. (laughs) He walks to the closet and brushes away cobwebs, assuming that the door would then be safe to open, but a dangling skeleton pops out and scares them both. So there have been people in this house setting up all of these pranks. Right, yeah. Yes. Possibly for years. Yep. Because this is like a tradition. Yep. Yes. And nothing has ever happened until- We don't know that. Well, now, oh. now you're assuming things. Oh, okay. Maybe people Fair die enough. every year and they start over anyway. But if there's a skeleton in a closet that's covered in cobwebs, that's that's it's not, not from this year. It's not recent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just fake cobwebs, like you buy at the store. Maybe this family who lived here hung a loved one in the closet <laughs> after and forgot they died. about it. Yeah, that's a real skeleton. <laughs> Uncle Knickknack's summer wardrobe. Uncle Knickknack. Marty decides she's had enough for the night and lays down above the sheets in her eight-layer dress costume. Jeff tries to join her, and she points him to the other bed. Jeff blows out a candle at her request, and we cut to the other couple. The flapper girl wakes up with a startle after a twinkling of piano on the score. She takes more lewds from the nightstand and washes them down with more whiskey. She hears a knocking at the door and stands with a candle to check it out. The room is already well lit and there's already 30 more candles by the door, so the only reason to bring another one is to accidentally burn yourself with candle wax. She leaves the bedroom and takes a seat at a vanity against the wall. In its drawers, she finds spring snakes, like you might find in a can of beer nuts, and they explode out of the drawer, freaking her out. Cute guys. Yeah, on the off chance that someone enters one of the many rooms of this house. Yeah, and is this opens a four-bedroom this- place? Because if it's more than that, then you wasted time. <laughs> is every single room of this mansion booby-trapped? <laughs> with, with spring snakes? Snakes everywhere. Snakes and skeletons <laughs> in every room. I really wanted when Seth flushes the toilet and snakes spring out of the toilet. <laughs> and it's just his own poop because the toilet's backed up. 
Because <laughs> there's no running water. Right. But they, but they, I told you. But they insisted on installing toilets. Right. That would have been a great joke. Like, <laughs> he's the toilet, he pulls the handle and nothing happens. Yeah, he's just like, oh, I guess there's no running water either. I wish he'd mentioned that. As the flapper looks in the mirror, we cut to Peter in the walls behind the one-way mirror, shining a flashlight in his own face wearing a rubber monster mask so that it appears to overlap the flapper girl in her reflection. This is known as a Pepper's Ghost Illusion, named for John Henry Pepper, who popularized the effect in the 1860s for ghost-themed stage performances. Nowadays, it's most famously employed by Disney's Haunted Mansion attraction, where a light is shown on a ghost model either behind a one-way mirror like on the way out of the Haunted Mansion, or as in the ride's ballroom scene, the models are arranged above and below the viewer and reflected into place by a pane of glass. The same technology has been used lately for the musical performances of so-called holograms like Elvis Presley's and Tupac Shakur's. Unfortunately for Peter, Flapper Girl is so high that it barely phases her. It's quite a murder on my skin. Peter is annoyed that it didn't work, which is probably why he tried half-acidly to take all her drugs and he climbs back out of the trapdoor on the stone wall. I think that's why he didn't want them to be intoxicated so that they would be scared. But also, was he expecting one of them to approach a, van a random vanity in a random room? He expected a lot of stuff. <laughs> he figured out exactly which rooms they would be in, or do you think he booby-trapped every room? Yeah, it's like he, he, this the meticulous plan of his, I don't get it. Yeah. Um... I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. Peter calls out for Scott, who doesn't answer, and then he climbs the rope ladder up the side of the house. On his way up, we pause conspicuously beside a window as though something important were about to happen. But then he reaches the rooftop uneventfully. On the roof, he trips over the body of the dummy that Scott never threw over the side of the mansion. But the wire it should have been hung on is already draped over the edge. Peter locates a hand crank and starts to reel something up from the edge. Which I don't think he would be capable of doing. No, probably not. Unless there's like a lot more pulleys in here. than Yeah, because uh, I, no. <laughs> when the object he's pulling up reaches the roof, Peter shines a flashlight at it and it's Scott's bloody corpse. Peter is horrified and backs away releasing the crank and sending Scott's body plummeting back down the height of the building to the ground below. He scrambles back down the rope ladder and dashes down the hill to the gate. He fumbles with the key to the gate lock long enough that the same filthy hands suddenly grab at his face and yank him to the ground. A chase ensues, and for a moment, someone who doesn't know horror films might be forgiven for thinking Peter will escape. Eventually, though, Peter crashes headfirst into the creature, whose grimacing face we see up close this time, before he skewers Peter with a scythe through the heart. Scythe through the heart, and you're to blame, weird creature. The face is clean-shaven with wispy gray hair and what looks like sharpened teeth. Presumably this is the grown version of Andrew Garth, but he looks a lot older than 26 if this is him. Because <laughs> he was 14 when this happened 12 years ago. Back up in their room, Marty somehow wakes Jeff by relighting a candle. They decide to pass the time with an odd chat. Marty asks if he believes in ghosts, and Jeff doesn't. She segues into a childhood encounter with a witch, but witches and ghosts are different things. Wanting to fit in, Jeff claims to have seen an elf once. How do you know it was an elf? Well, what would you call a three-foot man, white beard, pointed ears, red cap? A typical textbook elf. They decide they're both weird, and that's enough to convince Marty to switch over to Jeff's bed. So I guess us weirdos would just have to stick together. They start making out, and we cut back to the other couple. For the second or third time, the flapper accidentally calls Seth Wes. They keep playing the same clip of the two of them laughing together, 
and it makes them sound crazy. It's just, they both laugh at the same time over the top yeah. of each other, and they play it like four or five times in this scene. <laughs> and they're both, like, they're both wearing clothes. Yes. Like, she, she has not taken off more clothes than she had before, and he has not stripped out of his boxers. Correct. But- but then they both kind of like roll over and relax, like it's like post-coital. Like, yeah, it's like, are you guys done? I ha- have you done anything yet? <laughs> yeah. After writhing on top of each other for a while, <laughs> their dry hump sesh morphs into a tickle fight. <laughs> Apparently, the actress had signed on, fully willing to do a nude scene, but Vince Van Patten, playing Seth here, was worried about it reflecting poorly on his father, Dick Van Patten's acting career, and suggested a sexless scene instead. Well, that was a mistake. Yeah, that hurt your film. <laughs> Yeah, if you shouldn't have taken this role if you were yeah. worried about your father. When they decide they're done with whatever's happening here, Seth loudly announces he's going to take a shit. Well, time for the John. John? I thought your name was Seth. I really wish she'd said Wes again here. <laughs> but she didn't, and that's something I'll have to live with. <laughs> While Seth poops, a POV pushes through a door into the room and stares at Flapper Girl trying to sleep in the bed. The camera gets real close, and then we get a jarring cut to the third-person view as a crooked, gray-haired man leans over the bed staring down at her. Again, probably Andrew. Yeah, the the score here gets very, uh, I called it hypnotoed. Okay. She wakes up and gasps, but a dirty hand covers her mouth, and we cut back to the bathroom as Seth flushes the toilet. But it works. Yeah. <laughs> Disappointing Richard. Seth checks himself out in the bathroom mirror and gives himself a little pep talk. Score another one for the good guys. But when he gets back to the bed, Flapper Girl is nowhere to be seen. And yes, we're 53 minutes into the film, and one of the four pledges has yet to be given a first name. But I'd rather say Flapper Girl than Miss Dunsmore. Somehow, Seth mistakes a tiny lump under the covers for his sleeping girlfriend. But when he finally feels around and whips back the covers, he finds in her place a severed head. Confusingly, though, this is not the Flapper Girl's head, <laughs> yeah. but May's head, which we saw chopped off underground earlier. And we won't realize that for quite a while. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just assumed it was Flapper Girl's. Right. <laughs> Seth uh, is obviously freaked out and runs screaming from the room, which quickly catches Marty and Jeff's attention. What happened? She's dead. Who's dead? I don't know, man. Who do you think, Jeff? It should have been obvious that Seth meant the girl he was sleeping with. Turns out it actually wasn't her, but there should have been no question in Jeff's mind who he meant. Yes, there's only four people here. But he even says, I have no idea. This is some sorority girl. Yeah. (laughs) Right, but that is also what you could have said about the other person in the bed with him who we haven't named. (laughs) Marty recognizes the head of her sorority president friend, May, and Jeff ushers her out of the room. They ask Seth where Denise went, and he has no clue, but he's getting out of here now. This, by the way, is the first time, almost 55 minutes into the movie, that anyone has said Denise. He runs to the gate, and they follow him. He tries the gun they were provided on the lock, but it's loaded with blanks. Is this the same gun that Peter used? Is it the same lock he shot? Yeah. Well, if he he shot a lock... I don't know if he did. Oh, yeah. Seth shimmies his way up the gate and over the sharpened spears at the top. Jeff even tries to lift Mary toward the top, but she can't keep a grip on the bars and they fall to the ground. It's actually pretty intense when Seth is going over the top because the whole time I was ready for this character to just slip and stab himself. Well, yeah, because when he's going up, 
uh, he cuts his hand on right. the edge, so you can see that these things are like razor sharp. Like someone went up there and sharpened the spears on yes. top of this fence. He does catch a shoulder and poke himself slightly, but then he lowers himself down to the other side. Once he clears the top, he has to jump most of the way to the bottom, and then he asks Jeff to throw his boots over, even though he could have kicked them under the gate. You pass them through the yeah. gate like this. The boots were definitely narrower and there's than also the holes in the gate. a foot between the bottom of the gate and the ground. But yeah. throw them over. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted Mar- to nail him in the head. Oh, I, I just wanted Marty to like come out of the gate complete, like almost completely <laughs> with the boots yeah. and like hand him to him and then go back in. The gate opens because he never remembered to lock it. You could do that the whole time. <laughs> Only when it was funny. Oh, yeah. And when he's trying to climb the fence, he, he says, you can't do it with your boots on. So he takes his boots off, but then he's just wearing socks. So it's like socks is worse. You need bare feet for the grip. No, no, no. You need to grease that up, buddy. <laughs> Lunch Lady Taurus, do you have any grease? <laughs> yes, I do. Then grease me up, woman. <laughs> Seth disappears into the night, promising to return with help, and Jeff and Marty agree to return very slowly to the house in search of Denise. They say her name for maybe five minutes of screen time. It's basically an entire 1313 film. Denise! 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 Just running around an empty house. Yeah. <laughs> As they slowly wander the house, they are frightened when they notice the corpse of Scott the pirate hanging from a wire outside a window. I guess he's been here since he fell. Mm-hmm. We cut to Seth pounding on the doors of the frat house in search of help. He flags down a passing car when he can't get in, but the car won't stop for him either. Do you guys remember the last time a car didn't stop for someone trying to prevent heinous murders? Uh... Oh, last. Uh, the last the last house on the left? That is correct. They wouldn't stop for the cops. Back in the bedroom at Garth Manor, Marty asks Jeff again if he believes the Andrew Garth legend. Jeff notices a light downstairs in the garden and offers to check it out. But we never see it. I know. We never get the POV on yeah. this. I think they just couldn't get the angle right. And they were like, all right, fuck it. I see a light. What kind of light? A flashlight? A candlelight? Like, yeah, I, is this like Great Gatsby? Are you just drawn across the bay? Is Daisy over there? getting literary again we're a long way from literary i gotta go down there don't go down there you'll get yourself killed what if it's denise down there and she needs our help and what if it's andrew he tells her to wait in the room and to block the door with a chair while he's gone he takes a candle with him outside to search the garden where he saw a light glowing the wind blows out his candle immediately and he gets spooked so he grabs a nearby pitchfork to defend himself a pov watches him explore a hedge maze and follows him is that a hedge maze? It is this, a hedge maze. Okay. It's, yeah. it, for, for me, it, it just, just looks, looks like, like two two rows of bushes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's not enough turns in this. We never get an overhead view because we didn't get the POV out the window. Right. When Jeff turns a corner, he crashes into Peter, speared through the heart with a scythe and propped up by it. Jeff collects the flashlight at Peter's feet and runs back to the house with his pitchfork. But after he leaves, the camera zooms into Peter's dead hand to reveal that Jeff has neglected to collect the keys to the gate lock from him. Seth arrives at a police station screaming about the murders at Garth Manor. When he tells the police what fraternity he's pledging, the cop knows Peter Bennett well and assumes that this is another of his frat's dumb pranks, threatening to arrest Seth for making a false report. No matter how serious Seth sounds, the police won't hear it, so he takes matters into his own hands. On his way out of the station, Seth ducks into an open evidence locker with a table covered in assorted guns. He picks up a shotgun that was probably used in a recent murder and loads it. He climbs out the window with a shotgun and runs back toward Garth Manor. Marty and Jeff are back in their bedroom again, talking about how long Seth's taking as a shape rises from the rug behind them. When they finally notice it, Jeff stands up and plunges the pitchfork into the shape 
and it deflates back to the floor, which seems very supernatural until they move the rug and they realize that under the shape is a trap door in the floor. I was a thousand percent sure this was going to be Denise and they were going to pull that rug away and he would have stabbed her and right. he was the reason that she died because she was like gagged and tied up. Oh, and- I thought she was mumbling because she was drunk and stoned. <laughs> well, either way, I was like, oh, that's pretty good yeah. that like you you release the person that you stole back into the room so that they kill her. But we wanted that to happen in, in the funhouse too when they put his friend back through the ride and yeah. they stab him and they realize that it was his dead body and it's like, oh, he should have been alive. They should have killed his friend. At some point in this movie, before, uh, really before, I guess, May's death, what I thought was going to happen was that there were going to be a series of seemingly seeming deaths. like And then those people come back. And yeah, like that it's going to be like the game, kind of like sure. a big reveal. Sorry, spoilers if you haven't seen the game. Super effective uh, pranks that they pulled from this fraternity. Yeah. But sure, everyone was dead. Yeah, but like what I thought was like, it's like this is going to go too far because they're not in on it mm-hmm. and they are going to kill somebody by accident. Yeah. Through the trap door, they can see steps to a basement speckled with the blood of whoever he just pitchforked. When Jeff says he's going to inspect the subfloor, Marty urges him to wait for Peter and their friends to return in the morning and let them out. Jeff has to update Marty on some things. Peter's dead. What? I found him out there in the garden. I didn't want to tell you before. Jeff disappears down the steps and inexplicably Marty joins him this time. They climb down multiple flights of stairs into the manor basement, which connects to the tunnels under the yard. It takes a long time to get to the bottom, and each flight gets darker and darker. She is arguing that she doesn't want to go. Right. Like, but, it's like, stay but in then this the, room then. But then they, she does just go. <laughs> yeah. Marty is worried they'll get lost down here, but they notice a light source in the distance. That worked out well last time. It's a natural cave formation now, not man-made construction. It looks like a lot, but I guess there were only two tunnels and a lot of creative editing. Yeah. The idea for these claustrophobic hallway scenes came from producer Bruce Cone Curtis after he watched Terror Train where everything was tense and cramped. And he was like, I want something to feel tight and uncomfortable like that. They come upon a table set for a meal and seated around it are a skeleton, a very old dried out corpse, and Denise's body. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a table with a bunch of corpses sitting around it? Happy birthday to me. That is correct. I'm still a little confused about these. Aside from Denise... (laughs) The other corpses would have to be members of the Garth family killed that night 12 years ago. But one is well-preserved and one is a pure skeleton. So The 14-year-old boy was not good at preserving bodies. He was was that stupid. He he probably ate the meat. Why didn't he eat all of the meat? There's two people here. He was full. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's it's been 12 years. He didn't eat more than one person yet. (laughs) Rats crawl all over the remains. Wait, who are these people, though? Presumably they're Andrew's parents, right? Well, no, because, like you said, they recovered three bodies. So two of these bodies have to be... When you say be... three bodies, but Andrew survived, oh. that makes me think you found oh. the three kids. Okay. And, then and these so the other bodies the are the parents that Andrew yeah. kept. But how okay. did they know that the, that the father or mother were dead and that the father... Because committed... there was a note that said... And then I killed myself, and then two cops yeah, came in and I read this note and shot my, each other. When I mass murder my family, I'm going to write a note that said I suicided myself too, and then like get the hell out of there. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why they believed it. But also the note wasn't fully, like, his remembrance of this note is not fully accurate anyway. He got other details wrong, which will come up. But I think these are supposed to be the parents' remains here. 
Marty and Jeff hear loud rumblings and turn back in the direction they came from. When they see the silhouette of a creature ahead, they change course and the monster, again presumably Andrew Garth, chases them through the cave labyrinth. They head back up the stairs and somehow Jeff notices a trap door along the way. It just looks like a flush stone wall, though. I don't know how yeah. he noticed this. <laughs> I also don't like the concept of this because it's. I think it's supposed to be real brick. But I'm like, how do you, first of all, create a, a put brick all these rocks on a hinge on a hinge yeah. that's level with the the wall and like and then everybody lifts it with ease. Yeah, it's like this should weigh 500 pounds. <laughs> Jeff and the monster fight over the pitchfork for a moment, and they both go flying down the stone staircase. According to director De Simone, Barton was legitimately injured in this fall, and his limp for the rest of the film is real. However, according to Barton, it was not real, and he kept a rock in his shoe so he wouldn't forget which side to limp on. Choose your own adventure! I feel like we've heard that before. I mean, it's a, I think it's a common tactic oh, okay. for characters that need to limp. They push open the trap door and climb out into the yard. Andrew tries to follow them, presumably Andrew, but Jeff jams the pitchfork through the trap door handle so that won't happen. I have to keep saying presumably Andrew because we never get a confirmation of who this is chasing them. Yeah. We never get a name. Across town, Seth notices a man walking to his car in a parking lot and he uses the stolen shotgun to carjack the guy. The man threatens to call the cops and Seth says, please do. Tell them you got matter. That's the second time I've been held up by a shotgun today. Yeah. When we cut back to Marty and Jeff, they appear to be indoors now, but I can't tell where they are because the shots are so tight. When the camera finally backs up, it looks like they're back in the fucking room again. There's no way I would ever go back into this house, let alone just chill in this bedroom with a monster running around. Go out to the gate and look for a way out. At the very least, keep an eye out for your friend coming to save you. Why are you hiding in this house? Seth comes flying down the road toward the gate, and as he pulls up to it, someone runs through his headlight beams on the outside of the still-locked gate implying one of four things. Either this monster has a key to the gate, which I don't think. He's climbing over it, which I don't think. There's another way in, or this is a different monster. Also, why does he stop the car at the gate? Drive Ram through the gate. Drive through yeah. the gate. Yes. Seth parks his new car, grips his shotgun tight, and prepares to single-handedly save his friends. But or, or are you going to climb over the fence again? Yeah, <laughs> what was your plan here? Or, or shoot the lock off? Like, I, like I, I, don't, I don't get why he stops the car. Yeah. Because even if you find a way in, you're going to you have- You have a to, gun that doesn't have blanks now. Yeah, and you're going to need to find a way out. What if, you know, at least leave the- burst the gate so you have a way out. Right. Instead of climbing back over, Seth walks like 10 feet to the left and finds a bent bar in the fence so he can easily step back onto the property. In fact, the bars are so far apart, he could probably fit between them anyway. The only reason he has to go inside now is because his friends were too stupid to look for this hole. We get another very long shot of Seth creeping up to the house. He's suddenly attacked, but that's weird. This monster seems a bit bigger, with long, thick gray hair and a great big bushy beard. <laughs> the two wrestle for a bit. Seth keeps trying to get back to his shotgun, but he can't get a hand on it. He finally grabs it and spins around to shoot the monster in the torso, and it flies over a ledge and lands in a fountain below. Seth wanders down some steps to check on the body, and when it rises again, he puts a second shot in its chest. I wish he put it in his face, just for the confirmed kill, but he doesn't yeah. do that. He drags the body out of the water and leaves it beside the fountain, and we can clearly see a big gray beard on this face, where the previous face we saw was clean-shaven. He runs inside to tell Jeff and Marty that he has killed the monster, and when they fill him in that everyone else is dead, he isn't remotely phased. He killed everybody but us. Peter, Scott, May, Denise, they're all dead. 
The stinking cops wouldn't believe me. So I had to come here by myself. I killed him out by the pond. You should have seen him, man. He was like an animal. The shape reappears and drags Seth around a corner, and we hear what sounds like a brutal monster attack. The shotgun fires one last time, and then it's tossed out from behind a column and comes to rest in a beam of light on the floor. Clearly baiting. Right. Marty tells Jeff she's going for it. <laughs> I'm gonna get the gun. No! I'm gonna get the gun! Jeff watches her walk down the stairs alone instead of coming with her like she did for him. Maybe his leg is still too fucked up to go down more stairs, but then they climbed all these stairs up to get back to the bedroom a second ago for no apparent reason. What's a few more? Marty starts calling for Seth as though there's any question what happened to him, and then makes a run for the shotgun on the floor. Of course, the second she does, the monster reappears and chases her back upstairs. They return to their bedroom and block the door with a chair, but a pair of gnarled hands punch through the balsa door to come after them. They have a funny exchange here where Marty asks, Who did Seth kill? <laughs> and Jeff's like, Fuck if I know. <laughs> it's yeah. like their friend just admitted to murdering <laughs> someone, and they're worried it was like an innocent person in a costume in the yard. It's my question, too, though. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Jeff helps Marty climb out the window while Andrew approaches. He grabs Jeff's legs before Jeff can follow her out the window, and Marty climbs up to the roof. Andrew lifts Jeff over his head and then tosses him out the window, and he plummets a couple floors to his likely death. My, my note here is, Marty goes out the window, and then the, I, I was watching while I was typing, I was like, oh, apparently Jeff goes out the window too. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as Marty reaches the roof, she climbs down the rope ladder to the ground out front. Finally, Chekhov's window explodes, and a pair of hands burst through beside the rope ladder to grab Marty around the neck. She fights back against her attacker and falls off the ladder to the ground, and it looks like a really painful landing. She finds Jeff's body outside and then runs past the fountain where Seth left that other corpse. It's still here, so there's officially two people attacking them. Andrew throws open the front gates to the manor, and Marty makes a run for the gate. Marty sneaks through the labyrinth, looking for a way out, and crashes headlong into Peter's body. She notices the keys in his hand and manages to wrench them free. I don't know if you're like, there's the gate in front of me, there's a hedge maze. I'm going to check the hedge maze for a way <laughs> yeah. out. No, that's not what hedge mazes are way in. <laughs> she races out to the gate and unlocks the chain before cleverly locking it again behind her. Outside, she sees Seth's stolen car parked with the keys in it. She has trouble getting it started, possibly because Seth left the headlights on when he went inside. She pops the hood and uses magical electricity powers to resurrect the battery. I don't know how cars work. But but I like the character trait that she's a mechanic, there's something wrong with the car, and she's able to, to bypass it or fix it. Yes, but that was very easy reverse writing, where you're just like, oh, the car breaks down, but she fixes it. Why? Oh, she's a mechanic. We'll put something in early. <laughs> Thank God we'll for the one... such and such device. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now we could smoke in space. As she backs the car away from the gate to drive away, she inadvertently backs it through one of the gate doors. The door is still connected to the opposite door on one side and the door frame on the other, but it rotates 90 degrees forward, leveling out eight feet off the ground. Marty continues driving down the road until the monster leans down from in front of her because he's been hiding on the roof of the car, which we didn't see when it drove through the gate. Yeah, how would that be logistically possible at all? Because she just fixed the car then got back in the car and there was no monster anywhere on the car yeah. and then she drives off it must have jumped on between the camera cutting after she pulled through and this next moment but that seems Stealthily. unlikely yes yeah. see I, I think it would have been more interesting if he was in the back seat right but she looks in the back seat specifically mm. when she gets in the car smart even though it would make no sense for him to be in the back seat already she just ran full speed away from him but maybe 
I can I could never do that. I can never be hidden in the backseat. I'd be giggly. <laughs> it's like I'm gonna murder this person. She can be so surprised. The monster starts punching through the windshield at her, and she tries to drive while being strangled and punched. She swerves the car back around and drives it toward the broken gate. The monster on the roof of her car is clotheslined by a row of spearheads across the top of the gate that are now pointed forward from the damage she did. The monster screams and blood pours out of his mouth as Marty cries in her car under him. Finally sensing she is safe, Marty passes out in the car and wakes up probably hours later. Amazingly, no one from the fraternity is here to let them out, and the police never showed up from that carjacking victim calling them. Yeah. And the body is still there. And the body's like, still there, I'm yeah. like, the whole point of you, like, I don't know why she, why we bothered to do the passing out and it's morning, because, like, I'm like, oh, then he's not there. Wait, no, he's there. He's, yeah. he's still there. I, I, to me, I guess the point is that she made it all the way to Sunrise, which was the, the deal. Yeah, but she left. Yeah. She left She left the, the estate. That's cheating. I am glad, though, that we did impale somebody on this gate. I yeah. was going to be disappointed that that never happened. But you know what the obvious twist is for the end? Because you want to end on a jump scare. You don't want to end on... Because what we see here is uh, she gets out of the car. She sees the monster still on the roof. And she walks past him down the road to freedom. And we freeze frame on that. And we get credits roll over that. But the obvious thing to do here is to have the other two kids show up. Because the, there were the, four kids. Yeah, have have the, the limpy, limpy leg. You have and... a girl dragging her leg and then another girl saying nothing because she can't <laughs> talk. And then that's how you end the film. It doesn't make any sense this way. It's just yeah. boring to have her just walk away. Yeah. Nothing in this movie makes any sense. An earlier draft featured a single killer and the resurrection of the second killer was a late decision to add a twist to the film's climax. But what's the twist? Okay, here's the twist. When he said they found three bodies, he was wrong. They only found two. They only found the two daughters. Or, okay, so in the script, apparently, I couldn't, I couldn't okay. find a copy All of the right. script. In the script, it's Andrew and Morris. So it's the, the first son, the mongoloid son, and Andrew, who doesn't speak and groans about everything. Those are the two that are attacking these people. And every kill is done by Andrew, except for that one attack from Morris that fails because he gets shot twice. And I... I rewatched every attack scene and it's either gray wispy hair or the only the only scene where you can't see the hair is when he cuts off May's head mm-hmm. and we get a shot of his legs and the pants are torn from the knees down. Right. Which is the way the pants look on Andrew, not right. on Morris. So the only the only attack that Morris does is on Seth and it fails. He gets killed right away. So Seth kill, killed an innocent man basically is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um I just live here. <laughs> but yeah, but it bothers me that he had this lore about this house where it's like, oh, they only found three bodies. And it's like, well, they only found two. And the whole time I was trying to think of, oh, what is the arrangement of three bodies? And it's like, oh, it was only two bodies. Because at the last second you decided, probably after you even shot the moment where he said there were three bodies. And then you changed the story later so that, oh, no, it turns out another person survived. Well, and so... The bodies in the basement, then, we're assuming, are the parents. I think so. So, to me, he should have uh, had Denise and May both down there right. at the table yeah. to replace the sisters who were who were not there. Yeah, that would make perfect sense. That would have been a great little thing. Especially because there would just be, like, a headless body sitting at the table. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the wh- head is on the next chair over. And why did he, why did he take Denise, assu- assuming he killed her in bed... And then took her. 
but then said, I'm going to leave this head well, here. Well, here, honestly, I think it, I think you're putting too much thought into it. I think it's just dumb logic where he walked into the room holding a head and then he saw another lady and so he killed her and he just left the head there because he, he was taking up. the body out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like he started with a paper clip and he got all the way to a human head. <laughs> oh, no, I guess he got to Denise's body <laughs> yeah, from the human right. head. And next is the Tesla, and then you get a house party. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So, was the ghost trying to warn her? <laughs> I don't know what the ghost was. I'm not sure. Why? Because why would the man who killed his family try to warn her, or scare her, or or make any kind of contact? He's here's lonely. here's another question. <laughs> Did he kill his entire family, or make any attempt to kill his entire family? Or did he only kill the women in his family? Mm. Did he kill anyone, or was it just it, did Andrew and Morris kill them? Yeah, I, as, yeah. Is this like a Menendez situation where they just blamed it on them? Yeah, because he found the note. Yeah, but uh, but also they've been coming to this house for a few years at least. A few years at least. Never encountered at, either of these guys. At the very least, they've been at this house for a couple of days setting up wiring right, yeah, and, yeah. and electronic doors they didn't do that all in one night they did that over the course of several days they had least. to bring truckloads of skeletons in to put in every closet yeah. of this building <laughs> so why was no one attacked at those times maybe they did it during the off hours <laughs> they did the, it during- the brothers sleep during the day that's right okay i guess that makes sense Nothing makes sense. It's also possible that because the way he says that he killed Morris is that he bashed his brains in, and it's possible that Morris just survived it, and the dad mm. didn't know before he hung himself. Mm. But I have another potential theory. If you ignore what is clearly canon according to the script, it's possible that the person that Seth kills is Suzanne and not Morris. Oh. Because in describing her, he specifically says that she was so ugly you couldn't tell if she was a man or a woman. Which explains the great big bushy beard. <laughs> but yeah, even even Morris looked like a 70, 80 year old man. Yeah. And he should have been like 30 or something like that. <laughs> because th- these kids were born every year. Four right, years right. in a row. So uh, it doesn't make any sense at all. But that's the end of our film. Um, It's a thumbs down for me. Oh yeah, thumbs down. <laughs> it's it's a little too sloppy. And I mean, there's there's obviously there's fun stuff about it, but it's just sloppy. It's uh you can tell they were kind of writing it by the seat of their pants. They didn't really care about continuity. They didn't care about answering the questions that arise in the course of the plot. Um It's not even a good like initial premise. You're just like, I want to make a haunted house film, but this one's going to be special cuz they wear costumes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's not the whole premise. I mean, th- there's plenty of movies about though that people have to stay the night in a haunted house or something like that. And this is the this is just a version of that. Yes, but I also feel like even the characters are are so shallow. It's like, what is this guy like? Uh, he's a surfer dude. He likes surfing. Yeah, he'll be a dude. He'll be dudes most of the time, and then he'll talk about surfing once. This guy's a cowboy, and he's just the savior. You know, he's the knight in shining armor. And then this, I don't, I don't know anything about denise yeah denise or even the uh the mechanic other than that she grew up as a mechanic and and it's like it's not even a class war because she admits oh i don't actually really care about politics it's literally just 
I'm a mechanic so that I can fix a car later in this movie. And that's it. That's the only character description that we get from her. So th- they all seem very one note and the acting is not great, which is why she got the Razzie nomination, I guess. Um, but yeah, there's not much here. And the, the well, twist isn't satisfying because uh, it doesn't make sense. It's like, no, actually, to me, there's a lot there, but it's not explained. Right. And and I don't know what's going on, and I want to know what's going on. And because you don't give me any information, yeah, uh, it's a thumbs down. Like, explain the ghost at least. I just want to know about the ghost. <laughs> I, I, I just, Maybe they didn't think they had to explain it because they were like, it's a fucking ghost. What do you want me to tell you? Yeah. <laughs> this is a universe that has witches and elves, and you're asking about the yeah. ghost? I, I also think that... A solid half of this movie was just people walking yes. cautiously around the house. Yeah, too much, too much of it. Because the running time is like an hour forty plus, but the walking time is an hour and thirty. <laughs> yeah, it was like you could have cut fifteen minutes and still been in like the eighty-five minute yeah, mark. Eighty-five is a sweet spot for these cheap horror movies, especially the ones with no nudity. It's like you don't take more than ninety minutes of my day. Yeah, you can linger as long as there's boobs. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> your boobs are hanging out. <laughs> and see, and I'm fine with having like no characters if you had more of them, like Terror Train. Like, like there's so many people on Terror Train right. that it's like, yeah, I'm not gonna have time to get to know these people, and they just get killed. I don't care. Um, yeah, you need more meat. Yeah, the, to yeah, throw into the grinder. Yeah, th- this movie needed a lot more people running around getting killed. Because then I can give it a pass, like that, where we're having character development. Right. But when you have like an intimate space, a bottle episode of four characters. Yeah, that's way too few. Yeah. There should have been at least one more couple, if not a couple more couples. Like literally double the cast. Jess, what do you think in Letterboxd? Um, it's not. It's not high, that's for sure, and. It's not on my phone because I was looking up pictures of Martin Van Buren, so give me a second. Was I right, though? (laughs) A little bit. Subtract a few years. Now was I right? (laughs) Well, no, I was Martin Van Buren Young was my search term. Mm. I don't think people painted him when he was young. He wasn't Mm. president yet. I'm not going to waste paint on this guy. I I think he was old enough to have a photograph of taken of him. Yeah, but that would be, he's like 100 in that. Yeah, because he was the eighth president. He's the eighth wonder of the world <laughs> in my heart. Because I always remember the Van Buren boys from Seinfeld. I don't remember that. Because <laughs> Kramer, Kramer was miraculously saved because that Van Buren boys, the gang, came to hassle him. But he was holding a salt shaker with two fingers. And so he put up his hands. And so he only had up eight fingers. And so they backed off. <laughs> I don't get it. Man, I need to watch Seinfeld. No, no, you don't. You're fine. Uh, I have it at 106 out of 117. It is below Condor, man. I think you might have hit Richard's number on the nose. But but above Home Sweet Home. Okay. So close. I have it at 107. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Uh, Which puts it below Happy Birthday to Me, but above Final Exam. Yes. I have it in 103. So we're all very close. I also have it below Final Exam, which is one below Home Sweet Home. So we're all kind of in the same range. But uh, And I have it above Permanent Vacation. So that's where it is. 103 out of what? 117 now. Our director here was Tom DeSimone. He got his start in the adult film market under the name Lancer Brooks. 
but this was part of his transition to the non-porn world. I was going to say, then where are the boobs? Yeah. Well, I mean, he got someone who was willing to show them, but one of our casts screwed it up. Do you guys recall the last horror film we covered directed by someone who came from the porn world? Last House on the Left? That's correct, which posted to our Patreon on Tuesday of this week, if you're listening. One of this director's better-known titles is 1977's Chatterbox, about a woman with a talking vagina. It features among its cast Rip Taylor, and it was DP'd by Tak Fujimoto. Wow. <laughs> I want to see All that. All of that sounds wonderful yeah uncredited director of savage streets also starring linda blair and director of angel three the final chapter and four episodes of freddy's nightmares among a lot of stuff i didn't recognize his brother bob de simone appears in both savage streets and angel three as well as playing billy slash male nurse in friday the 13th a new beginning the writer here was randy feldman this was his feature film debut after this his next screenwriting credit is for what might be our series finale tango and cash Wow. He also wrote JCVD vehicle, Nowhere to Run, Metro with Eddie Murphy, and he wrote three episodes of Early Edition and produced 15. Oh, I, I, I remember Early Edition. I like that you're still optimistic we're going to get all the way to the end of 1989. No, I'm just going to post Tango and Cash. <laughs> we're just going to skip ahead. That's how I rage quit the show is I'm just like, fuck it, Tango and Cash time. <laughs> the music here is from Dan Wyman. This is his third composer credit after a Graydon Clark double of Without Warning and The Return both of which we've covered, one with a regular and one with a mini-sode. He's back after this to score The Dead Pit and Lawnmower Man. We mentioned his credit in The Fog for Electronic Realization, and he's also credited later this season in Paternity for Synthesizer work. Cinematographer Mac Alberg. After this, he lit Ghoulies, Reanimator, House, Dolls, Deep Star 6, 17 episodes of The Wonder Years, Beverly Hills Cop 3, and the mid-90s Brady Bunch movies, Good Burger, and the first Evil Bong film. Oh, man, Ghoulies is so good. For the first one? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> the third one's great. Come on, it's got uh, it's got Murdoch. Yeah. <laughs> That's not enough to save it. Editor Anthony DeMarco was an editor for the series Manhunt, Have Gun, Will Travel, The Outer Limits, and Rat Patrol before this. Rat Patrol! He kept working, but I didn't recognize much. Linda Blair was Marty. She's best known for her portrayal of Reagan McNeil in The Exorcist, a role she returned to for The Exorcist to the Heretic, and sort of for Exorcist parody Repossessed, though technically her character is named Nancy Aglet. Yeah. <laughs> but it's such a great movie. Yeah. No, it's not. It's pretty bad, but it's pretty funny. She also appeared in Airport 1975, Roller Boogie, Savage Streets, and we saw her earlier this season in Ruckus. She played the titular Jenny in MacGyver episode Jenny's Chance. Later, she appears as a reporter in Scream, and I have to assume she'll show up in the upcoming Exorcist sequel trilogy that David Gordon Green is putting together. I think I've read that at least Ellen Burstyn is coming back for it, but no word on Linda yet. According to the script, the character's full name is Martha Gaines, but I don't think they ever say that in the film. But she goes by Marty. Vincent Van Patten played Seth. The character, as written in the script, was a good old boy from Louisiana. But when Van Patten was cast, they changed the character to a surfer dude to fit Van Patten's actual hobbies. He is the son of actor Dick Van Patten, who shows up in Robin Hood Men in Tights, Robin Hood Connection, father and son. His ex-wife Betsy Russell plays Jill Tuck, the ex-wife of the Jigsaw Killer, in the Saw movies. He played Apple in 28 episodes of a 1974 show called Apple's Way. That sounds like a terrible name for your show. Yeah. It's a good way to get it canceled after 28 episodes. 
Lately, he works most often as a host for various poker events, but he's probably best known today for his appearances on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, which features his wife, soap star Eileen Davidson. Seems strange to call a full-time soap opera actress a housewife because she doesn't fit the definition at all. <laughs> she has a full-time job that she works. Isn't a housewife a wife that doesn't work and just does things at home? Peter Barton played Jeff. He played Matthew Starr and David Starr in a 1982 series called The Powers of Matthew Starr, on which he was burned very badly and missed like a year's work because of it. He's back in 84 as Doug in Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter, aka Friday the 13th 4. In the mid-90s, he played Detective Peter Burke on Burke's Law, but his most recent work is soap operas with 169 episodes of Sunset Beach and 197 episodes of Young and the Restless. I've liked movies in my life, but I've never liked any movie as much as Ray Folk of Lincoln, Illinois liked this one. Because in his will, he bequeathed his million-dollar life savings to be split between Peter Barton, who plays Jeff, and Kevin Brophy, who plays Peter. He'd never met either actor, but both were awarded $500,000. Why? Jeez. Why them? Because he likes this movie and he liked them for some reason. That's so weird. Kevin Brophy played Peter. He played Lucan in 12 episodes of a show called Lucan in 77. Weird that so many of these actors with almost no credits have played title characters in short-lived TV series. Jenny Newman played May. She was Barbara on V and Helen Selleck in Stage Fright, a.k.a. Nightmares. We saw her last as a nurse in The Last Married Couple in America. Next season, we'll see her as Connie in My Favorite Year. Jimmy Sturdivant played Scott. He was Vinny DeSalvo, brother of competitor Jerry DeSalvo in the competition. Carrie Fox played Younger Cop. His first credit was as Sonny in Roller Boogie, also starring Linda Blair. And he's back as Agent Hunt in Firestarter. Ron Gans played Driver. I think that's the guy whose car gets jacked. Yeah. Lots of voice acting credits. Earlier this season, we heard his voice mixed into a TV broadcast in SOB. And later this season, he voices Crime Buster, which I'm presuming is a cop robot, in Heartbeeps. Later, he voices Dragstrip in Transformers, Armus in Star Trek The Next Generation episode Skin of Evil. Oh, shit. Really? <laughs> yeah. And he's also Juggernaut in the 1989 Pride of the X-Men TV movie. Jean Hasselhoff played a party guest uncredited. This was her first credit, and she is the younger sister of Mr. David Hasselhoff, and as such has made appearances on both Knight Rider and Baywatch, but not Baywatch Nights. So, embarrassing for her. The actors who played the Garth brothers, or siblings, do not appear in the credits, though somewhere online credited them as Valentino Richardson and Chad Butler, one of whom actually died in a car accident either just before or just after the film was released. Actor Van Patten has claimed that Kevin Costner worked as a grip on this film, but he isn't credited. Someone who is credited, though, is production assistant Frank Darabont. Oh. Writer-director of Stephen King adaptations Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile, he was also the showrunner for the first season of AMC's The Walking Dead, and he has lots of amazing credits. The Blob. I think that's everything for Hell Night. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. We just passed 200 subscribers. Very exciting. What's that sound? We got one! That's right. It's a new patron, former and future guest of the show, Mike Sterling. As a $5 patron of the show, Mike now has access to 32 full-size 70s reviews and 37 minisodes from 1980 and a hand in choosing next month's film. 
For October of 1972, $5 patrons are choosing between the following six titles. Bad Company, Robert Benton's acid western about a pair of Civil War draft dodgers played by Jeff Bridges and Barry Brown. It also stars John Savage, Jeffrey Lewis, Ed Lauder, John Quaid, and David Huddleston, marking the first collaboration of the Big and Little Lebowski actors. Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, Luis Bunuel's surrealist comedy about six middle-class people whose efforts to join for a meal are repeatedly thwarted by circumstance, told in a series of dreams. The King of Marvin Gardens, a second of three team-ups for director Bob Rafelson and actor Jack Nicholson for the show, after five easy pieces but before The Postman Always Rings Twice, King of Marvin Gardens tells the story of brothers David and Jason Stabler, played by Nicholson and Bruce Dern respectively, who travel together to Atlantic City looking to strike it rich. It also stars Ellen Burstyn and Scatman Crothers. Isn't Marvin Gardens next to Atlantic Avenue? Maybe. Lady Sings the Blues, a biographical drama on the life of Billie Holiday starring Diana Ross in the lead role, as well as Billy D. Williams and Richard Pryor, directed by Sidney J. Fury, the uncredited director of Night of the Juggler and The Jazz Singer. He was fired off both films. Night of the Lepus, William F. Claxton's sci-fi horror monster movie adapted from Russell Braddon's 1964 novel The Year of the Angry Rabbit about a swarm of <laughs> mutated rabbits terrorizing the American Southwest. It stars Stuart Whitman from Demonoid, Janet Lee from Psycho, Rory Calhoun from Motel Hell, and DeForest Kelly. Yeah. A little Rory Calhoun. From Star Trek. And finally, Treasure Island. John Huff's adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's immortal story about a young boy and his adventures facing off against the dreaded Long John Silver, played in this version by Orson Welles, each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversaries this October. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Unseen, which IMDb describes like so. A trio of female reporters find themselves staying overnight in a house occupied by a hostile being lurking in the basement. (laughs) So original. I can't wait. We leave you now. But wait, are they wearing costumes? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Why wouldn't they be? (laughs) They're dressed as reporters. (laughs) Perfect. Reporter costumes. We leave you now with a trailer for The Unseen. For too long, it has been locked away. Breathing. Eating. Watching. Waiting. Hello? Barbara Bach stars as three women move unknowingly to unlock a living nightmare. The unseen lives. Help! Somebody please! You'll feel it. You'll hear it. Then you'll see it. The door is open to the unspeakable, the uncontrollable. There is no escape from the horror. Hide and it will find you. Run, and it will catch you. Struggle, and it will swallow you whole. 
The nightmare is unbelievable. The terror is unleashed. The horror is unequal. The unseen from World Northall, rated R. Get it in, get it on, and enjoy the flog. Welcome to Film Vloggers. Oh, harder, Daddy. The only film review podcast, thankfully, that poses the question, does watching this film feel like flogging a dead horse? There he is, beating that dead horse! Introducing your hosts. First up, her Irish potty mouth turns the air a whole new shade of blue. It's Fiona. Say hello, Fiona. And why the f*** is Dan Mackers doing our intro? That's great. It's great. She's adorable. And your second host needs no introduction. The man, the myth, the legend. Like, I said I'd do this. I said I'd do this for you. I'm not reading this. It's the guy who waffles too much. It's Ben. Cooey! I'm making waffles. So what are you waiting for? Grab your whip, mount your dead horse, and let's get on with the flog, shall we?